Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. Hey, we're coming to you from Neversink, New York. Alice, ever been to Neversink? I have not. You I have never not. heard of it. Never you heard of it. It's for real. It's Neversink. And I thought it was a good name with you because I, I kind of think of you as a never sink kind of person. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> you're, you're you, you know, I mean, in fact, I think the audience is going to find out today some of the environment you teach in. But I thought, boy, compared to my teaching experience, you being in CUNY, I'm saying that right? CUNY? Yes, okay. CUNY. Uh, CUNY, that could be a high sink environment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's intense. It's intense. It's intense. It's intense. Yep. Well, just for the listening audience, we have with us today, Dr. Hollis Glazer. And Hollis, I'm not sure I've ever used that title. I don't think you have. But it sounds great on you. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is. It's for real. It's a real it's, title, but it sounds great Thanks on to you. you, Bob. Thanks to you. <laughs> <laughs> Hollis is a professor at CUNY University. At Lower Manhattan, Borough of Manhattan Community. One of the largest city universities in the world. Right. You were saying you dropped a little bit in enrollment, probably particularly after the pandemic, but it's been a very large city. And that's certainly one of the things we want to explore is what is it like to teach in a city university like that? And particularly in New York City, you yeah. know, Hollis has had several administrative duties as well as being a professor there. You were the chair of your department. You were the chair of several committees. You've been on a, a couple different review committees for other universities. So your world is essentially academic life, right? Which is, yes, that, it is. Absolutely. That's how you would describe it. Absolutely. But, I like teaching. I do. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Right. Tell us a little bit what it's like to teach in a city university, particularly in a city university the size of CUNY in New York, how that works for you. Right. So City University of New York is is monstrous. I think there's 22 colleges. Seven of them are community colleges. They're spread around the boroughs. We're Borough Manhattan Community College, which is in lower, lower Manhattan, if people know, Chambers and West, near the World Trade Center. Mm. What we like to say is all trains come to BMCC. I mean, all the trains come down to Chambers Street one way or another. So we have students from all over the city, from all the boroughs, because mm. frankly, it's easy for them to get on a train and get down there. You know, it can be easier for them to do that than to get to a borough community college that is closer to them. So, there, you know, the other colleges, other community colleges have what we call feeder schools, feeder high schools. So there's a half a dozen of them that they know that and they can go recruit. And we really don't have that. Mm. But I think there's something about the students who get across the river makes them a little bit feistier. But they are in and out. They are in and out. It's very difficult to keep them there for extracurricular mm. activities. Yeah, so we try to, or I, a lot of us try to, you know, construct the classes. They're getting to know each other a little bit, bonding a little bit, because we know that that'll keep them coming back if they bond with us and with each other. So the classes themselves, in a sense, are the interaction environment. Mostly. Because you don't have a lot of extracurricular, maybe a little, but not a lot. Students right. are coming in and coming out on the train, as you've described it. I mean, we have a lot for them, but a lot of people do not take advantage. Ah. They got complicated lives and moving around the city is hard enough. And most of them are not full-time students. Many of our students are food insecure. Many of them are housing insecure. 
there's a lot going on with the students. So it's a matter of really trying to balance that out. Like how much do we keep them on track and how much do we let loose a little bit? I mean, I had a student, an independent study student who had just dropped off. I hadn't heard from her. You have to be really gentle with it because you never know what's going on. So I was like, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? Well, it turned out she was in a domestic violence situation. And mm. so I was like, all right. And she needed to get this credit done. You know, so I work with like, what can you do to, that is legitimate here? So, you know, we came up with something. But anyway, students are have very complicated lives. Faculty are brilliant. I'm always the dumbest person in the room when I'm with my buds. And I love that. How do faculty find their way? How did you um, find your way to CUNY? I mean, I'm sure they advertise in the Chronicle of Hired and things yeah, like that. A little but bit. It, you know, I just needed to get back to New York. This is a whole backstory, Ray, which it's just a whole thing. But Omaha got very anti-gay and very weird and conservative. I'm Jewish too. And I tell people, you can be one minority in Omaha, but you can't be two. And a woman. Yeah. And that. Yep. So that's triple. Yep. And queer. So it's, yeah, queer, Jewish. Yeah, all of it. So thankfully right now I am physically able at this moment. Anyway, I don't want to go into this long story, but I took a leave of absence at one point from Omaha and came here. I just needed to get back to New York. And I was just looking far and wide at any kind of academic opportunities here. But our faculty, I don't know if I can answer that, how they all ended up here. New York City's a draw. Well, let me change the subject then and talk a little bit about, well, what's it like to teach communication in New York City? What would you say are the high points, the things you like about teaching communication in that environment? And what are some of the greatest difficulties you face? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I do think I have to talk about this from before COVID and post-COVID. I haven't taught public speaking in a couple of years, but I was teaching a lot of it for most of the time I've been here. And one of the great things about teaching public speaking here is the students are so, they were before COVID, just so out there and so funny and so raw. You know, they would get up there and say something else that they haven't told anybody and start crying. Hmm. And I mean, it took me a while to like figure out what do I do when a student cries up in class, and which never happened in Omaha. They are so buttoned down. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and just the way they bonded and had helped each other and they'd yell out, you got this, They just all this stuff. So that was really fun. It's not that case right now. I mean, they really are shut down a lot. Uh, um, so they surprised me. I'm teaching Introduction to Communication Studies and I'm using the Griffin book, Look at Communication Theory, hmm. which a lot of people use for their intro to grad class. And, you know, they can do it and they have a good time with it. And the other days, I take them through a bunch of theories, and then we end up on chapter two, which is like, okay, here's interpretivists and here's objectivists. And one of my students just loved it. He was like, this was awesome. This just blew my mind. I was like, really? This is the chapter I, you know, think nobody's going to key into. So just those surprises and when they really take things and run is great. It sounds like you have students that really want to be engaged. Some of them. It's a mix, Bob. It's a real mix. I mean, some of them really take things and run, and some of them aren't clear what they're doing and kind of stay low and on the down low. (laughs) In terms of the background you gave us about some of your students, question popped into my thinking, that is, what are their educational priorities? How do they tend to use their education? Yeah, well, most of them want to go to a four-year. We have some two-year programs where they can go take them and get a job. But most of them do want to go to four years, and they most of them stay within CUNY. What do you feel is the most important communication concepts you teach them? 
Ray asked the question, where are they going? And then my thought is, well, how do they use communication? Or what are the concepts that you think are most relevant and important for them? Right. Well, I guess I'll speak to that regarding the Communication 100 class, the intro class. I started them out with symbolic interactionism, mm. you know, and just that whole base of the social construction of reality and, you know, all these things that we're dealing with are socially constructed and none of this has to be this way. Now, you probably need to explain that just a little bit for our audience, Hollis, because you, Ray, and I can get this. Right. We've got some listeners out there that the moment you say symbolic interactionism or the social construction of reality, they say, what? (laughs) Okay, so the social construction of reality being that and symbolic interactionism being that we all create meaning together and that God has not given us money. (laughs) God did not give us money, people. And so, you know, we break that down in in terms of all the hierarchies we have in this world and that that's all socially constructed and the way we shape each other as we grow and that we learn who we are through the interaction that we have together. So when you teach that, do you teach the application of that? Do you talk about how do they apply that? How do they use that concept in their day-to-day living? I try to. I try to get them to the application and yes. What would be an example of how you would gender, 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 you know, what are gender expectations? Where'd that come from? Do you abide by that or do you resist mm-hmm. that? Or, you know, where are you with gender and, and how you express yourself? So that's kind of a nice, deep, yet easy one to mm-hmm. get a hold of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, where, what do you want to do with your life? Where'd you come up with that idea? Why are you in college? Where'd you come up with that idea? Mm-hmm. You know? okay. So yeah. the idea that things are not fixed. Right. These are being socially constructed and have been for you Right. to choose to participate in them or not. One of the things I think about in my background of teaching is just the whole concept of negotiating. And yeah. students really don't think that life is negotiable. They think right. life is when the lines have drawn pretty hard and fast. And right. so the idea that, no, I can engage in this and through communication, I can actually create a certain reality. And right. So what are some of the other things that when you think about communication and what you would deem as kind of important for your um, students to know and learn? Right. So, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm actually thinking about this now because I'm, I've got to teach COM 100 over summer and I'm, I need to shift it around a little bit. I mean, I get cognitive dissonance in front of them. Hmm. That's a powerful one that they seem to remember a lot. And also some of the mass media theories mm-hmm. because they're mm-hmm. so in it and All these mass media theories were created during the height of television, and now media is completely different. So we we make a shift like, is this applicable when you're just, you know, scrolling through TikTok? Is this, is the same thing happening here? Uh You know, so that's good. Getting them to think about their media use is really important, I think. And it's mostly just about being self-reflective. It's not so much that I want them to remember a theory long term. It's more about like, can you be conscious about your communication choices here? more about that, really, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, I find it interesting that you do connect that up with their world. Now, do you find them interacting with you or do they just sit and kind of take it in and not push back or not say, I have no idea what you're talking about? Yeah, it's both. You know, there's always like a handful of students who are interacting a lot and coming back at me. But like I said, I mean, I'm telling you, since COVID, it's just been a lot harder to get them to get to class even. I mean, even class mm-hmm. attendance is down right now across the board. Because it's just more difficult to get there or they're not inclined to show up anymore or that. I, you know, I just read a thing and I think it was in the Times where this is kind of a epidemic that's happening with the junior high school and high school students, that there's this lot of anxiety about going to school and they're not, a lot of them are not showing up. 
And they think mm. it's as many as 20% have this anxiety. And, you know, we're trying to get them back face to face. They're not coming back. I mean, a couple of years ago, CUNY and it's all of its wisdom decided, which was a violation of academic freedom, by the way, which is another thing I pay attention to, that we would have 75% of our classes, you know, face to face after we had 100% online. And we were like, really? Well, let's see what the students have to say about this. And so, you know, we, well, this it, we didn't get it because the students weren't showing. By the way, audience, you didn't get to see the sneer on Hollis's face. When she <laughs> said, oh, really? There was a huge sneer there. So I just want, I want the audience to have a chance, Hollis, to see your nonverbals as well. It's important, right? That's right. Yeah. You know, I hate to do this. But we are actually getting close to time. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was so, fast. Uh, and Ray, you probably have a question or two you would like to ask. You made a comment that what you're working on these days is ungrading, and it caught my attention. And I would love for you to talk to the, the listeners out there about what that means to you, because we live in an academic world. They understand grades. They they went through school. You're really advancing the idea of ungrading. Maybe a comment or two on that. Sure. It's a movement that's been happening for a while. And the first is that grading is not teaching. So I'm forced to give a final grade and the students want to grade, you know, yeah. but don't, I don't grade their assignments as we move along the semester. They mm. get their final grade based on how many assignments they've done at an adequate level. So there's a lot of low stakes assignments. There's a lot of rewriting and redoing. It's very transparent. It's got to be very clear to them how to get that grade. And they have to have, you know, a certain amount of control over it. So what, what's the fun in that, Hollis? You can't beat up on the students. You can't punish exactly. them. You, you can't lord it over them. Yeah. What's the fun in that? Yeah, that's exactly what got me into it because I was feeling like a police officer. I was feeling like I was punishing my students. I'm like, this is not teaching. Why am I doing this? And so mm -hmm. I really spent a summer trying to turning that around and then found out that, that it was called ungrading. But I just thought, how can I do this so that I'm teaching and they're learning and there's no anxiety about grades and I'm not talking to them about grades and I'm not punishing them. So you are getting less and less of people saying, will this be on the test? There's, I don't give tests, Bob. <laughs> there are I no tests. I that. But <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people who have not lived in the academic world, who have not taught, don't realize that this whole grading evaluation process is one of these overlays on top of the educational system that really works against education in a very serious way, right? Exactly. Yep. Exactly. It works against learning. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Ray, did you want to jump in at all? Oh, there's just one thing that Hollis is, I don't know if intentionally stressed, but stressed to me is the idea that the pandemic and COVID made such a remarkable, yeah. dramatic difference in the educational experience for her and her students. And I'm wondering at this point, Hollis, do you see any recovery or do you see the recovery taking right. your teaching and your students in a different direction? Well, I'm hoping that this is somewhat developmental and that we've got the students right now who've got it worse and that in a couple years, the students who lived through COVID were junior high or early high school students and they'll have a couple years to work it out and then come to us fresher and ready to go. That's what I'm hoping for. It just feels very habitual. Mm. And, and there's a lot of anxiety too. And it is difficult to get around New York. You know, it's so much easier just to sit like we're doing, just sit in front of, you know, computer. So that's what I'm looking at. I don't know what the research is saying about but it's rough. They're struggling a lot. Sounds painful. Yeah, it is. I don't want to understate it, but it almost sounds like you're saying it's really has served as a major distraction. 
you know, we had a system in which we were teaching, making contact, and then the pandemic came up, COVID came up, and all of a sudden everything becomes distracted. Yeah, distracted and also trauma. I mean, there was real trauma. Uh And, you know, there's a whole thing called trauma-informed pedagogy, where you just kind of recognize your students can probably figure 75% of your students have some kind of PTSD going on. So, wow. so what are you going to do? Which ungrading actually goes along with that. It helps a lot of the anxiety. So, I mean, it feels pretty deep, really. That strikes me as unique, I mean, to your environment. I mean, I wouldn't have described it, University of Illinois as a trauma environment. Uh, here we are mm-hmm. kind of down in the cornfields. And although they were restricted in classes and they had to do mm-hmm. testing all week, every week and things like that. I mean, you've described mm-hmm. something really quite serious that I've never thought about. Yeah. And I mean, they were going through trauma before COVID being just being in the city and being, you know, lower working. You know, it's hard as is. Most of our students are students of color, immigrants, first generation, learning English. So they're working hard on a lot of fronts. Yeah. We're at a time where we have to wrap this up, but I guess I want to wrap it up. You've actually triggered it in me. Everything you're describing is really hard work. So what's the reward in it for you? Well, I want to say my colleagues are just so amazing and so smart and down to earth and interesting. And I get a lot from them. And then, you know, when the students figure things out and see how how different classes connect or see how some of these concepts work in their lives. Um, Yesterday was my last class with a couple of them. And my final words are were something like, go forth with power or something like that. Go forth in a powerful way, people. I mean, I just feel like it's giving, you know, it is powerful classes and the communication concepts. So it's rewarding. You know, I feel like I'm doing a good thing in this world. I'm hearing you say doing something significant, making a difference in some students' lives, which I think a lot of us in the academic world, that's why we're there. We want to do something impactful, significant. And you're being a safe place and a learning place. You're giving an opportunity for change, an opportunity for them to move away from some of the trauma that they've experienced and at least look hopefully towards the future. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, Hollis, when you describing your colleagues, I said, that's not how I remember you talking about them when you were the chair of the department. <laughs> <laughs> I had but to that, go beyond the department. <laughs> a whole different story. Well, Hollis, thank you so much. We've got thank to wrap you. up this session. We may have to have you back. We, what a treat. Yeah. Thank you. The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger, more complex, or more dangerous than it already is almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the score that both began and ended this podcast.